our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Unspun. Before we get started, I want to ask you a favor. I really appreciate you listening, and I would love to get your feedback on the episodes. So if you have a chance, would you please go to whatever podcasting service you're using, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever it is that you're listening, and leave me a rating and or a review. It's really helpful for me to know what's working for you and what isn't, and it also helps make the podcast more discoverable for other people. So that's first. And here's the second thing. I have a chance this spring to do several live sessions for community groups and people around the state I live in, and I'm going to be revamping some things I've done in the past. I would love to get a few people to volunteer to be part of a test group to experience what would be in this training and give me some feedback on what might make it better. I would do this on Zoom in an evening that would work in all U.S. time zones. And so if you're interested, please visit my Substack, which is theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Don't worry, it's completely free. And I'll have an article there that will tell you how you might sign up to help me out. I'd love to get a chance to meet some of my listeners on a Zoom call. And with that, let's get unspun. Vaccines cause autism? Well, I have one million results that say they don't, and one result that says they do. I knew it. Imagine with me that you're sitting in a coffee shop, and you hear the people at the table next to you arguing a little bit over whether someone in the ordering line who came in with a medical face mask is making a good decision. Now, for the record, scientific evidence is strongly on the side of masks. But that said, we all know that face masks have been, well, controversial. You've heard a variety of opinions, everything from everybody should wear them because it's a community good, to people should wear them if they need them but shouldn't expect other people to, to wearing them is wrong for some reason, you know, maybe because of individual rights or because some people actually believe face masks are harmful. Again, not really true. But you overhear these two guys squabbling at the next table. And the guy in the red hoodie says, I'm telling you, Dan, masks are useless against COVID and the flu. He takes a loud slurp of his drink and he puts it down on the table kind of hard. Dan is shaking his head. It's not true, he says. You know, all the experts say that wearing masks significantly reduces this kind of virus when people wear them. And Hoodie just rolls his eyes. Come on, even your beloved Dr. Fauci said masks aren't needed. Wait a second. Is he right? There's a lot of confusion among people and misinformation surrounding face masks. Can you discuss that? The masks are important for someone who's infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Now, when you see people 
and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. Well, yeah, I thought you did say it. But this clip is from March of 2020, and the full context of that interview includes that masks were really hard to get at that point, to the extent that even healthcare workers could not get them. It was more important for them to have them, and that explains Fauci's comment. In the four years since, there's been a lot of evidence that masks could make a real difference in the spread of disease. But Hoodie is disregarding all of that and just selecting the facts that support what he wants to believe. This tendency to selectively highlight just the details that affirm your view while disregarding everything that contradicts is a very essence of a common but deceptive strategy called cherry-picking. Maybe you've seen a weight loss ad shouting that it helps people drop 10 pounds in a single week, and it sounded too good to be true, but they say science backs it up. So you finally read the fine print, and they cite a study where they only followed 12 people for four days. Yeah, they cherry-picked useless information to make bogus claims. And it's such a big problem that the FTC actually has a whole microsite just about misleading weight loss ads. Let's ditch the textbook talk and get real about cherry-picking. It messes with everyone, not just companies. We all cherry-pick sometimes. Friends do it. Politicians do it. Even our moms do it. We cling to these convenient truths while ignoring anything that might wrinkle our carefully crafted worldview. Now here's the thing. Not every cherry we pick is rotten. A single fact can be perfectly true. The problem is when we build a whole fruit salad using only the cherries that tickle our taste buds and we toss the rest into the compost bin. We get skewed conclusions and with lopsided arguments even if our intentions were good. Let's see how people are playing the cherry picking game with some juicy examples for this week's warm up. A new Rasmussen poll, in fact, because the people get it. Uh, much of the media doesn't get it. They actually get it, but they don't write it. Let's put it that way. But a new Rasmussen poll just came out just a very short while ago, and it has our approval rating at 55 percent and going up. That's the former president talking about his approval rating and citing Rasmussen. Rasmussen is a polling company, and most people who evaluate the quality of polls, you know, like 538 or all sides, find that it has a pretty reliable conservative bias. And in fact, that wasn't the only approval rating poll that was released at about the same time. Others, including Fox News, Gallup, and Pew that were done the same month, put the approval rating in the 40s and even the 30s for Pew. It's easy to make your point when you just pick the data points that you want. Here's another example that's taken from a political ad. This is Senator Pat Toomey. In Washington, Senator Toomey makes choices, like fund education or tax breaks for the super-rich and corporations. Hint, millionaire Toomey chose the tax breaks. Pat Toomey was a Republican senator from Pennsylvania who chose not to run again in 2022. Notably, he was one of seven Senate Republicans who voted for removal in Trump's second impeachment trial. The ad says that Toomey voted against education. But what it's really referring to is just one vote on a particular amendment that actually no Republican supported. That amendment failed, but Toomey did vote for the larger bill. He voted for education, and he also voted for a bunch of other pro-education deals. So the cherry-picking on the part of that liberal pack that ran the ad is unfair. Here's one more example. Of uh, national attention, and in, in case we have forgotten, because we keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record, I asked the chair, you know what this is? 
It's a snowball, and that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. That's the voice of Jim Inhofe, a senator from Oklahoma who also left the Senate last year. And I wish you could see the video from this. Inhofe was known for being a climate change skeptic, and he chaired the Environment and Public Works Committee twice in the Senate. He was speaking about his belief that climate change was a hoax, and he actually brought a snowball in a zip-top bag onto the Senate floor as a stunt. When he said that the fact that there was snow outside in D.C. on that particular day was an example of cherry-picking, picking a single example of the weather in D.C. today to deny a whole lot of other data. And this is a really common one. Climate change denial lives on this. Lawmakers will fixate on one winter storm in their hometown and declare that it disproves global warming disregarding the 97% scientific consensus that temps are rising. Cherry-picking is a big problem because when people pull out individual statistics to use in a speech, it's hard to know if they're being fair or not. And that's why moving beyond social media to a bigger news story can sometimes help. Or, if you get a chance to ask questions, you could always ask the person compared to what, or what's the context for that figure. Up next, I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Katie Anthony from American Oversight. The government generates a lot of those statistics and information that people cherry-pick from. But it's not always easy for an average citizen to get their hands on that information. In fact, sometimes it seems difficult to impossible. And this is a weird thing, because as a taxpayer, you're literally paying for that information to be created. This is a world that Katie and the folks at American Oversight live in. And so we'll hear from her right after we take a quick break. I'll be right back. My guest this week is Katie Anthony. Katie is the Deputy Chief Counsel at American Oversight, where she works on public records drafting and litigation strategy, especially in their developing state public records program. She's worked in private practice as well as as a special assistant district attorney in Massachusetts. Katie, welcome to Unspun. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you can tell my listeners a little bit about what American Oversight is, what you do, um, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So American Oversight is a nonprofit, nonpartisan government oversight and transparency organization. And what that means is that we, uh, well, we do all of our work through public records. So we seek um, records from the government through the Federal Freedom of Information Act and public records laws of states around the country to shed light on what government officials are doing, um, try to get that information out to the public where we think it belongs. Um, we look into areas where we think there might be something wrong that we can shed light on, whether that is misconduct, abuse of power, conflicts of interest, undue influence by, you know, external in interest networks. Um, and, you know, we want the public to have as much information as they can so they make informed decisions and can participate in the, the process. So how do you decide what issues it is that you're going to follow up on or look at into? That is a great question, and there is just so much we could be doing. Um, so we try to focus on what we think of as threats to democracy, which includes um, threats to voting rights, election conspiracy, theorists uh, peddling baseless claims of election fraud, um, and also just trying to cast doubt on the election process in general. 
So that is a big area for us. We focus on other things as well, but those are the things um, that that's a big bucket of, of things that we try to focus on. And we have a great team of researchers who really uh, keep their eyes on the news and other sources of information to try to find the best places for us to focus our resources. Okay. And uh, do you work with journalists at all or is it uh, something you do completely independently? We work with journalists in the sense that we, uh, once we get the information, we want it to get out to the right people. So we work with journalists mostly on the back end um, in terms of, you know, our great communications team will think through which reporter is on this beat and is going to be able to tell the best story about this um, and that kind of thing. So we will pitch certain documents we get back. Um, that is one avenue that we have of getting information out to the public. And we also keep in regular touch with with a lot of journalists to keep them abreast of what we're doing, get information from them about what they're interested in and what their readers are going to be interested in. Um, so we do work with journalists a lot, but we don't um, typically partner directly on public records requests with uh, journalists. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So you just said the word public records, and I know you work a lot with that. Can you explain, Yana, for my listeners, what does that really mean? Like, do we as ordinary citizens have the ability to know about everything the government does or is some of it secret or how does that work? Uh, well, maybe not everything the government does, but ordinary citizens absolutely have the right to know what a lot of what their government is doing. And that is, you know, part of our democratic process. So that's the purpose of public records laws so that ordinary citizens can keep informed of what the government is up to and participate in the process and um, I am a lawyer, so I'm going to quote the Supreme Court for you here because I think they have some really great quotes about what the purpose of these laws is. Um, and what they've said is that the basic purpose of FOIA is to ensure an informed citizenry vital to the fun functioning of a democratic society needed to check against corruption and to hold the governors accountable to the governed. So that's the reason for it. Um, State public records laws exist for the same purpose uh, because our government should work for us. So we should know what they're doing. OK. And um, are the state laws different from the federal laws? They are. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences uh, depending on where you are. So um, there are every state has its own public records laws. Some of them are modeled incredibly closely against the federal law. Others uh, have sort of taken their own shape. Um, and there are a lot of similarity, similarities and differences just depending on where you are. Okay. So I'm curious, what kinds of things can you find public records about? Maybe you could give me a couple of examples of interesting things you've worked on. Sure, absolutely. So the things that my organization works on might not be exactly the same thing an average citizen might look into, but as I mentioned, we look into areas where we think there might be some kind of misconduct to expose or where transparency is going to help drive good behavior on, on behalf of um, our elected officials or, or other government actors. So some of the things that we have looked into, I talked about our work on in the area of uh, what we think of as threats to democracy and a few things that we've uncovered uh, over the past couple of years. Um, well, this one goes back a couple of years. So in March 2021, we obtained copies of the forged electoral vote certificates that were signed and submitted to the National Archives and Congress by supporters of former President Trump trying to undo his election loss. So those records um, 
there was public information about the fact that that had happened, but we were able to get the actual certificates. And something that that revealed was that there was there were stark similarities across the the certificates submitted uh, from different electors in different states, and it really um, it really suggested a coordinated effort that had been involved there. Um, and we've gone on to uncover additional information about many of the individual electors, uh, several of whom have um, been involved in a national election denial network uh, that worked to cast out not just on the 2020 results, but also on the integrity of our election processes in general. Um, so that was, you know, one kind of small example, but uh, well, small example with a big impact, we thought. And um, sort of a bigger example, uh, we have taken a deep dive into the partisan election audits uh, in Arizona and Wisconsin in particular, in a few other areas as well. But those were the ones that um, they were some of the biggest ones and the ones that we've spent a lot of time on. And we were able to reveal a lot about what was happening behind the scenes in those um, in those investigations. Um, I hesitate to call them audits or investigations, but in, in what was happening there. Uh, for example, our investigation in Arizona exposed the influence of right-wing conspiracy theorists. They showed that former President Trump had personally called uh, Arizona Senator Karen Fan, who was one of the leaders of that audit. Um, and most importantly, they showed that these audits failed to uncover any evidence of widespread election fraud, despite a pretty incredible expenditure of public resources on these processes. Um, and similarly, our investigation in Wisconsin showed that the Wisconsin Assembly and its Office of Special Counsel had um, also failed to uncover any evidence of widespread election fraud. And it also revealed that the people involved in this audit had questionable credentials to be doing the work that they were doing, limited knowledge or background in the area of elections law, um, and then we also found out that the Office of Special Counsel in Wisconsin had been routinely deleting records that they deemed um, unilaterally deemed unhelpful or unimportant to their investigation. Uh, so we'll we'll sort of never know exactly what they thought was not helpful or not important. Um, but we certainly, as public records and transparency advocates, had a, a big problem with that. So you've mentioned a bunch of different kinds of things at this point, right? So you've mentioned phone calls and you've mentioned like people's backgrounds and you've mentioned files that get deleted and those kind of things. I'm wondering what the the content of some of the files that you get back actually is. You know, are those the kinds of things that, you know, like an ordinary person could even understand or what's in there? Sure. So I've talked kind of about what these records revealed, but I didn't speak to what they actually were. A lot of the records that I've been referencing are emails. So emails exchanged between um, folks in these government offices or exchanged between government officials and external actors, non-government actors. So that's something that we do a lot uh, because we found that that is the information that is going to really tell us more information about what's what's going on. What are they doing? Who are they talking to? What does this all mean? So in terms of whether it's something that someone can understand, it it's all relative and it all sort of depends on what context you're coming in with. So, uh, but essentially at the end of the day, the records I'm talking about are, you know, email correspondence, your regular office correspondence. If you know the general context of what's going on, I think, you know, anybody could, could understand that. Um, 
assuming it is, you know, clear and not in code or something like that. But it's it's really just your standard standard emails that that anybody is sending this day and age. You can also, of course, request a lot of other types of records from the government, uh, which would also sort of depend on your general knowledge um, and, you know, the baseline context and understanding you're coming in with. If you want to know more about the budget for your local your local government, you could request information, re- well, request documents about that and how much you understand it really depends on, you know, your how much you know about your government and how the, the budget material is prepared. Um, so again, it's really just depends on the context, but there's no secret, you know, magical formulation for these records. It really uh, is just a lot of it is standard office paperwork. Yeah, I know um, I've spent a little bit of time with investigative reporters and editors, and a lot of times they're looking like for data from databases and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, So you said at the beginning that, you know, citizens do have a right to know what the government's doing, and you put some kind of qualifier in there that I don't remember exactly what it was, was usually or sometimes or something like that. So what kind of exceptions are there? Yeah, so there are built into every public records laws, there are exceptions. There is this understanding by legislators that the right to information about what your government is doing is incredibly important, um, but that needs to be balanced about against some legitimate reasons for confidentiality or privacy, depending on the types of records. And there are a variety of, of exceptions and exemptions to what you can get through the public records laws, uh, but a few common examples. Um, one would be certain types of law enforcement records, uh, national security, classified records, that kind of thing. Those are kind of self-evident, I think. Um, there are also personal privacy exemptions. So we have, you know, government officials are they're normal, ordinary people, and there's information that they they might put into um, an email, uh, you know, maybe in a professional email. They're also sending birthday wishes to someone, and it's a totally personal, non-governmental thing. Or, you know, their HR files. We don't, you know, necessarily have a right to everything um, about their performance reviews and things like that and, and day-to-day, um, you know, human resources type materials. So there are personal privacy exemptions as well. Um one that we see quite often, particularly at the federal level, uh, is exemptions for sort of deliberative material. So before the government has reached a final decision on, for instance, a certain policy that they want to in- enact, um, there are exemptions for the discussions that go into making those decisions. And the reason for that is, um, first of all, we want our government actors to feel like they have space to speak frankly and candidly, toss ideas around. Um, And if they know that everything they write could potentially be subject to public disclosure, they might, you know, that might chill their um, their comfort level with, you know, making the proposals and suggestions and fully engaging in um, in the decision making process, which could make their decisions not as good. Uh, It's also um, that exemption also exists uh, to prevent public confusion. For instance, if a couple of different ideas are proposed and discussed uh, and they don't all make it to, you know, that final decision, um, 
we don't want members of the public to to get confused about what actually is the government's policy position on on something or what what is the action that they ultimately decided to take. Um, so those are just some of the types of exemptions that um, that exist within these laws. It sounds like there's quite a few. So you said that uh, you're an attorney. Uh, do you have to be one to access these kind of records? Absolutely not. Um, these laws uh, enable anyone um, to seek public records. Um, and they are, whether it's in the law or a policy or a regulation, there are, um, the government is encouraged to, you know, really work cooperatively um, and in the interests of, um, you know, erring on the side of the most transparency and disclosure. So whether that is, uh, you know, a government actor interpreting a, a public records request um, generously, if they don't necessarily fully understand it, they are encouraged, if not required, to reach out to the requester to discuss and make sure that they understand what you're asking for. Um, they're not supposed to, you know, be overly narrow or literal if if they understand what you're asking for and, and would have phrased it in a different way. Um, they're supposed to, you know, interpret it liberally um, to encourage the, the best um, disclosure. That being said, I, I will say that it is it is helpful to be um, an attorney who can, you know, understand and work with these laws and certainly someone who, you know, in my position where this is this is what my organization does full time. We have resources and, in, and infrastructure to devote a lot of time to these things. And so we've not only developed expertise, but we have sort of the time to actually engage with government agencies about what we've asked for, which is a real luxury um, and and enables us to to really maximize the information that we are able to obtain from the government. So I'm just curious then. Um, so I know that like the access would help just because like where you're located and relationships you've been able to develop and those kind of things. Has it been harder doing some of the stuff you've done at the state level? Because maybe you don't have that same kind of access or relationship. Yes. So I think, you know, this day and age where so much business is conducted by phone and email, we really, you know, we're able to act work pretty nimbly. Um, but I do think that there are times when, um, you know, we just don't know as much about you. We, we can't know everything about every state, county, town. So somebody who actually lives in those places is going to have a better sense of who the players are. Um, and uh, also, you know, somebody you pick up the phone and it's an area code you recognize, you know, maybe there's there's going to be somebody in a local office who's just going to be more comfortable um, and more more open to to helping out someone who is looking for records about their own locality. I think that that probably does make a difference. Um, that being said, we, uh, you know, our team of lawyers, um, we have folks focused on um, and assigned to specific states, and they've developed a lot of relationships um, with people in those states. And I think that we've been able to to navigate that. And, and you know, we try our best to be as reasonable and cooperative as we can. Um, and so I think that we've developed that reputation for ourselves. And so uh, public records officers, whether they're in the federal government or in a county in Nevada or a township in Utah, um, we have developed that reputation that that we're you know someone they can work with. So, 
One of the things that I've heard from kind of talking with some of those investigative reporters is that this process can be exceedingly frustrating sometimes, that there can be, um, you know, very, very, very long waits for information in some cases, or if you, like, don't phrase your request in just the right way, you don't get the information that you want, and so it's another 18 months to, you know, get your information again, those kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about some of the difficulties of getting access to this public information? Yes. Um, there are all of those difficulties you just mentioned. I mean, I think that a lot of public servants are, they're, you know, really great people and trying to get their job done and they're working in good faith. Um, that being said, the sort of the nature of public records laws is that you don't know what you don't know. They hold most of the power. There's sometimes just not a lot of leverage. And if somebody doesn't want to be particularly helpful or if they want to be affirmatively obstructionist, um, there, are, there are ways that they can do that and they can put up barriers um, to, you know, releasing the records that um, that you want to get out of them. I, now that I don't think that um, most of the issues I don't think are, are a result of sort of intentional bad conduct. Um, a much bigger issue, I think, is just funding and resources. So public record laws are really important for the public's ability to fully participate in our democracy, as as we've already discussed. Um, and so these laws should be really considered a core function of government. But more often, under-resourced government actors are going to see these as just one more thing that they have to do. It can be kind of a, a nuisance. It doesn't feel like what they are going to work each day to do. And so... Um, it, they don't always get the attention that they deserve, and they're, you know, often funded, staffed, and trained accordingly, which means that depending on where you are, you know, some states, some agencies have really great systems in place, really great training, really great staff, um, and there are, you know, places that don't have those things. So the time it takes to get the records can be a real problem um, if you don't have the staff to devote to it. Uh, and the information can become stale if you have to wait a long time for it. Um, and then the quality of a response is not necessarily going to be great. You might not be able to, uh, you know, you might not have confidence that um, a full and thorough search for the records you asked for was performed. And you might have questions about information that the agency chose to withho withhold based on some of those exemptions, you know. Uh, it's it's easy to sort of slap a black redaction box over a lot of things and not take the time to carefully parse out what truly is and is not exempt. And there's a cost sometimes for these requests also, isn't there? Yes, that is true. So most public records laws, in including the Federal Freedom of Information Act or FOIA, do allow the government to charge uh, reasonable costs for records. There are fee waivers um, available in certain jurisdictions for certain reasons. Um, often, if there is a fee waiver provision at all, it would uh, often apply to journalists or um, requesters who are, are seeking public records in the public interest, which my organization is often able to qualify for that exemption, um, but not always. And... Um, Ordinary citizens who are seeking information for their own purposes or, you know, private corporations sometimes seek information from the government. There can be and often is a cost associated with that. 
So you said it was a reasonable cost. I'm wondering kind of what we're talking about that's reasonable. Yeah, that is um, that is a very good question. And it really varies jurisdiction, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I think some laws actually have pretty clear criteria on what can and cannot be charged and what different rates can be assessed. And other laws simply say a reasonable cost uh, and they leave it to the government to decide what is reasonable. Um, so there are there can be some discrepancies there um, and there probably is disagreement between uh, the person doing the charging and the person getting charged what is actually reasonable. Um, okay, so if someone is interested in public information and maybe they don't have enough money to hire an attorney and they want to learn how to request this information themselves, what are some resources they might be able to use? I'm glad you asked that because there are some some great resources out there. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask people to check out our website, American Oversight. So uh, www.americanoversight.org. We publish copies of most, if not all, of the public records requests that we send, and we have sent thousands. And we love it when people take our requests and use them as templates for their own requests. Um, so please do feel free to, to use us as a resource. Um, a few other organizations that are, are great, uh, we have the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Um, they have a an open government guide, um, I think, for every state, uh, which is a really, really great resource, can get you started. Another organization called Muckrock, um, that's another great uh, resource. And they have, um, I believe, either, you know, forms you can fill out to complete um, templates they've created or they, they've created a, an infrastructure that you can use to submit requests to a lot of different places. So those are some great resources. Um, there's also the National Freedom of Information Coalition. Most states, uh, well, many states have an affiliate with that organization that might have some resources on their websites. Um, and then a lot of states have their own public records guides. So if you go often to the attorney general's office for a state, if you go to their website, um, not all of them, but a lot of them do have resources on their state-specific um, open records law. Um, the federal government also has some resources available. Um, a good one, a good place to start at the federal level is OGIS or the Office of Governmental Information Services. Um, so they have resources for the public um, and for government employees as well. So hopefully everybody is on both sides are using those resources. Okay, great. And I know there's a couple of nonprofits within states as well. I just know that because we have one here at Elon, the North Carolina Open Government Coalition. So um, maybe some possibilities there as well. And I'm going to put all those resources you suggested in our show notes for today. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about uh, the world of public records and everything that American Oversight does. And I will put a link to you all in the show notes. And I really appreciate your being a guest today. Well, thank you so much. This was uh, a lot of fun. And I'm really glad that you are getting this information out to people. I need to take another quick break, but I'll be back soon. Welcome back. I thought we'd have a little fun coda to the episode today with a little story that addresses how weird communicating with your own government can be sometimes. A few years ago, I wrote a book about the alt.gov movement on Twitter, and as a part of that, I did a lot of interacting with some of the owners of the alt.gov accounts. The holder of the alt.gov account, alt.fda, had kind of a wild story about interacting with the actual FDA commissioner through his account. Now...
Like a few of the other AltGov accounts, AltFDA didn't actually work for the agency, but did work with it in an industry that was highly regulated. Here's how he put it. About 20 years ago, I got my start in the pharma game working in a pharmacy for an independent animal testing facility. While I was there, I learned the ins and outs of drug development, the regulations behind it, all the paperwork that goes along with it, including how the FDA is still addicted to fax machines, which I don't understand. Anyways, from there, I went on to Big Pharma. I moved into generic pharmaceuticals. There I helped manage a laboratory, helped do scalability of testing, along with some scalability of some manufacturing processes, and learned that side of it and everything that went along with that. The whole popularity of account kind of mystified him. Well, I started this account kind of on a lark. I was at work and saw all the Twitter stuff coming through about how Trump attacked the National Park Service. And at that point, I knew that I had to own that space. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, didn't know what was going to become of it, but I just knew that someone had the habit that was going to at least not abuse it. Well, flash forward about a week after that, and Alice Stolemeyer was on CNN talking about um, resistance and what Twitter does in the verse of like fighting against the government. She included my account name in her original infographic of trusted alt accounts. From that point on, I was gaining, well, at that point, probably 1,000 to 2,000 followers a minute to the point to where my account got up to 250,000 followers before I even had a grasp of what I got myself into. And then from that point, well, I just had to take it seriously and treat it like another alt-gov account to fight against the misinformation that was starting to come out. One day, he decided to try to message Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, about some information he had relating to inspections and ibuprofen, that super common pain reliever that's sometimes brand-named Motrin or Advil. And what was really surprising was that he got answers from a Twitter DM from an anonymous account. And I got to see some of that back and forth. The commissioner actually direct messaged to him, I appreciate you raising these significant concerns to me. I take them seriously. You have my commitment to investigate and address them as appropriate and respond to any public health issues. And then a little later, the Alt-FDA account got a message that said, your message was forwarded to the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research for Further Assessment. It was nothing all that major, but I was surprised, and honestly so was Alt-FDA, that they got that response. So maybe the way to get a rapid response from the government is to act like you worked there. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thanks to Katie Anthony and to Alt-FDA for sharing with us. And don't forget to leave a review and to visit unspunpodcast.substack.com if you're interested in the Zoom. Thanks for getting Unspun with me this week. Unspun is a production of me, Amanda Sturgill, and is a proud member of the MSW Media family of podcasts. Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. 
And until next time, stay sharp, everyone.